Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning. It's a joy and a privilege to be walking with you as together we pursue Christ. A few, a few years ago, there was an article published in the New York Times called The Enduring Hunt for Personal Value. And the article, the main premise was that it's suggesting that the primary thing that everyone is searching for in life is worthiness. We all want to matter. And it talks about uh, the research of a psychiatrist who had spent decades studying violence. And in all his interviews with inmates and mental health patients, who had assaulted others or even killed others, whenever he would ask why they did it, their response would always be something along the lines of, because someone disrespected me, or because of my pride or dignity. People long to be valued, worthy, accepted. And this is something we all want, right? If you think about Maslow's pyramid, that hierarchy of needs, you have your physical, kind of physiological needs at the bottom, your security. And then it's those psychological needs that need to be loved and accepted and respected and valued. So today we're going to be reflecting on the thing that most deeply gives us value and acceptance in life, and that is the gospel. We're going to see how as we believe the gospel, that affects and changes every part of our lives. So first, we want to be really clear on what the gospel is and how we're justified because of it. And then we're going to unpack more of what that means for our everyday lives. So just two points today. What is the gospel and what are its implications for our lives? And let me first just say that I know the word gospel, we hear this a lot in Christian circles, and rightly so, it's a word that we read in scripture, but it can become kind of this catchphrase. You know, we hear things like the gospel project and gospel coalition and and gospel movement and gospel-centered parenting and together for the gospel and all these different uh, titles and phrases. And um, so I just want to make sure it can be easy for us to kind of gloss over that term or make assumptions about what it means, but we want to be really clear this morning on what is the gospel and how that changes everything in our lives. So let's go ahead and dive in. Today we're going to be looking at a passage in Galatians, Uh, and if you have your Bible, please feel free to turn to it, or if you're at home, you can pull that out. It's in the New Testament. Galatians is a letter, sorry for my popping here. Galatians is a letter from um, the Apostle Paul to an area that was in uh, present-day Turkey, the churches in Galatia. We're going to start reading in chapter 2, starting in verse 11. When Cephas, and that's Paul, this is the Apostle, or excuse me, Peter, 
Paul is writing, Cephas is Peter's Greek name. So we're talking about the Apostle Peter. When Peter, Cephas, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So what is the gospel? Well, Paul lays it out for us right in the middle of this passage, verse 16. A person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. A person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. So what does Paul really mean here by justified? Well, justification is a big word. It's an important word for the Christian faith. And justification is a legal term that says that a person is not condemned. So if someone goes to court and they're accused of doing something wrong, Justification is if the judge declares that that person is not guilty. They're pardoned. They're given legal immunity. So in Christianity, justification is when we are made right with God. We are pardoned by God for the sin and guilt that's in all of us. We believe that none of us are able to meet God's holy standard. And so we're in need of a savior. We long to be pardoned of our sin and guilt and to be restored to that right relationship with God. And that's what justification is, being made right with God. So in this exchange between Paul and Peter, and we're going to talk more about this in a little bit, but it's happening because of the presence of the circumcision group. Now let me explain briefly the circumcision group. These are Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they also believed that in addition to believing in Jesus Christ, in order to be saved or declared not guilty or justified, one must also obey the law. And that's the law that was laid out in the Old Testament, the, the ceremonial laws and dietary laws and cleanliness laws. 
So they believed that belief in Jesus plus obedience to the law were both necessary for salvation. And this is what some refer to as a works righteousness. It's a righteousness or salvation that's based not only on faith in Christ, but on what we do, obedience to the law. And Paul wants to be really clear that salvation comes only through faith in Christ. Jesus plus anything else, Paul refers to as a different gospel in chapter one. He says, and actually it's really no gospel at all. Adding anything to belief in Christ as your means of salvation is distorting the true gospel. Now, many of us get this intellectually, but how often do we slip into this works righteousness, kind of legalistic way of life? So it's a life that says, if I obey, or if I do this or that, then I'll be justified, I'll be good enough, I'll be accepted by God. So we start kind of trying to set up these false sources of righteousness to prove that we're good enough, or at least better than others. We justify ourselves. We might do this by pursuing career success. You know, you climb up the ladder so you can say that you made it or you've worked hard enough. Or maybe you might use romantic relationships as a way of justifying yourself or proving your worth. If you feel desired by someone, it says that you're valued and accepted. Maybe you get really involved in social justice issues or community outreach programs, because then you can say, wow, look at everything I've done. I'm meeting needs, I'm helping people, and that makes me feel really good and valued. We might look to our family as a means of justification. You know, our family is really great. I'm a good parent. I'm way better than those parents who can't control their kids. I know I can't exactly say that one. We can attempt to prove ourselves through our intellect or level of education or political perspective or our self-discipline. There's so many different ways that we can try to justify ourselves in life and prove our worth. In the 90s, Vanity Fair interviewed Madonna, and she says this about her pursuit of value or, or self-justification. I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. There are endless ways we seek to prove ourselves, to show that we're good enough for God to accept us. But that's legalism, that's not the gospel. These are things we look to instead of Christ to give us worth. And the problem is none of these things can actually justify us. None of these things can say you are forgiven and not guilty. You are accepted and loved. Paul says three times in verse 16, some variation of not by works of the law. It's only Jesus Christ who can save us. 
Only because of his work on the cross can we be justified. Because on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty that we owed for our sin. And because of that, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, God declares us not guilty. Our sin is put on Jesus. And not only that, but Jesus' righteousness is put on us. In the resurrection, God honors the righteousness and perfection of Christ so that when we trust in Christ, God also looks as us, at us as if we've done all the good things that Jesus had done. And that's the gospel. We are justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, but what does this mean for our ongoing daily lives? It's easy for us to hear the gospel and say, okay, yep, I've got it, I knew that, I'm a Christian, now what? Well, what are the implications of the gospel? What does this mean for our lives? Let's look a little bit more closely at this interaction between Peter and Paul at the beginning of this passage. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow, follow Jewish customs? So we have this situation where Peter, who was Jewish, had made it his practice to eat with the Gentiles. Now, the assumption here is that he's sharing life with the Gentiles. He's engaging with them. They're his friends. Eating in the ancient world is really a meaningful practice. But Peter changes his practice when this circumcision group comes to town. So we need to understand a little bit of background here. I've already mentioned how the circumcision group held that belief in Jesus plus obedience to the law equaled salvation. But there was a deeply entrenched mindset for Jews that they were God's chosen and covenant people. They were the righteous ones. The law had created this barrier between Jews and Gentiles because the law contained all these rules, the dietary laws. There were things you couldn't eat. There were things you couldn't wear or do. And you can read all about those laws in Leviticus. And if you broke the law, if you did any of those things you weren't supposed to do, then you were considered unclean and you couldn't enter into the presence of God for worship. So the Jews sought to abide by that law, and therefore they thought of themselves as the righteous ones. And of course, then the Gentiles were the unrighteous, uh, the sinners, the unclean. So there was this racial and spiritual superiority that the Jews often had toward the Gentiles, and this was built up over centuries. But the reality was that the law was really extremely difficult to keep. It was basically impossible for anyone to perfectly meet all of God's requirements in the law. God had established the law as a way of expressing his holiness and showing sinful people that they couldn't keep those laws by themselves. 
So sacrifices were necessary to enter into worship of a holy God. The Jews would sacrifice animals as a way of covering their sin and so that they could be considered clean and able to worship. Then we get to the New Testament where Jesus says that he is the sacrificial lamb. And it's through his death on the cross that he fulfills all of those sacrificial and ceremonial laws. So when Christ comes along, all are considered equally unclean and condemned. But in Christ, all who believe are equally clean and saved. So here we have Peter, who knew that Christ had fulfilled the law. Jesus had told his disciples that those dietary and ceremonial laws no longer had to follow those. You can read about that in Mark chapter 7. And beyond that, particularly for Peter, God had given him this vivid vision in Acts chapter 10, where he showed him that Jew and Gentile were one in Christ. And they could, Jews could eat with the Gentiles because there was no longer justification by the law, but through faith. So Peter began living in light of that, in light of what Christ had done and taught, recognizing there was no distinction between Jew and non-Jew in Christ. But when this circumcision group came along, Peter, and then after him other Jews, and then Barnabas, they reverted back to their old way of living. The text says they were acting hypocritically. They knew they didn't have to abide by the cleanliness laws, but they weren't acting in line with those convictions. Why? Well, because they were afraid, maybe afraid of criticism from the circumcision group. But their behavior was reflecting this old way of thinking that Gentiles must become Jewish in order to be accepted by God. It was a mindset of Jesus plus something else equals salvation. So what Peter was indicating by his actions was that belief in Jesus plus becoming Jewish or engaging in these Jewish practices will make you acceptable to God. So it was a sin of nationalism, which is basically a form of legalism. He was looking to something other than Jesus as a source of justification. So Paul confronts Peter, but how does he do it? Verse 14, he says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, Paul reminds them of the gospel. He doesn't say, hey Peter, you know, you really need to stop being racist, or you need to stop being rude or self-righteous. He did need to stop those things, but Paul recognizes that the issue is deeper than that. He's challenging Peter to think through the implications of the gospel. Now think about this. Peter's an apostle. He knew the gospel. But that's what Paul brought him back to because he wasn't living in light of it. We can have this mentality that the gospel is just kind of the basics, right? It's the ABCs. It's what gets you into the faith. It's, it's for non-Christians or new Christians. And then we move on into deeper theology and teaching. But the breadth and depth of the gospel is something far beyond what we could ever fully comprehend or live in line with. 
It's not only the way we enter into the kingdom of God, but it's the way we live as part of God's kingdom. J.I. Packer and Gary Parrott in their book, Grounded in the Gospel, they say, we never move on from the gospel, we move on in the gospel. Martin Luther has a commentary on Galatians, and he says this about the truth of the gospel. It is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. The gospel is something that we need to beat into our own heads continually, every day, through prayer, reading the word, fellowship with other believers, through counseling, whatever it takes to get this gospel into our heads and into our hearts. Peter wasn't applying the gospel to this aspect of his life. When he was moving away from fellowship with the Gentiles, he wasn't living in light of the justification and grace he had received through Jesus. So when Paul confronts Peter, he's basically reminding him that God didn't save him because of his race or his culture, because of what he had done. So how can Peter then decide who he eats with based on their race and customs? Paul gets beneath the actions to the attitude, and he shows Peter that his racist attitude is a kind of works righteousness. It's an attempt to prove that he's better because of his race. And Peter was forgetting that we're all equal under the cross. We are saved only by God's grace. So this is an opportunity for us to reflect for a minute. Think about where you might be forgetting the gospel. Where might you not be living in line with God's grace toward you? Are you applying the gospel to the way you conduct yourself at work? Are you applying the gospel to the way you spend your money? Or how you engage with people who are different from you? or how you engage with your family or approach politics? Are you applying the gospel to your sexuality, to your attitude to the poor and needy, or even to your attitude toward others in church? Are you engaging with others simply because, or or maybe not engaging with others because you feel you're better for one reason or another, or are you remembering that we're all equal under the cross? Without the gospel, we try to prove our value and worth in all these different areas of life. But the gospel reminds us that we are sinful, yet pardoned, unclean, yet accepted. And it leads us to a new way of living. You know, when we're not living in line with the gospel, there's this fear and anxiety as we try to justify ourselves. We can get anxious, wondering if all we're doing is enough. We can get defensive if anyone questions our motives. We can have this superiority when we think that we're doing better than others. And we get selfish, ultimately, because everything we're doing is an attempt to get something from God, namely his approval. So we end up serving God from this place of insecurity and guilt and emptiness. We ought to do this or that, and we feel burdened to keep up our relationship with God through our moral behavior. 
One area where I often lose sight of the gospel is in my schedule. So I can have this kind of schedule righteousness where when things are going the way I want, I take pride in how well I use my time, how efficient and productive I am. But then I have this kind of, um, so I have this self-righteousness, but on the other side, I can have this guilt when I feel like I'm not using my time well. Or I have insecurity when I'm kind of comparing my life to people who seem to be able to do so many things, people who are you know, on top of it at work, who are caring well for their family, they're involved in all kinds of leisure activities and hobbies and in their community and church, and um, so I can have that insecurity. There's this works righteousness in, in when I think about my schedule where I'm looking for value and approval based on how much I do or how well I do it. But in those moments, I'm not resting in the gospel. I have this little post-it note on my desk uh, that I keep in my desk that says, anything, everything, yeah, now I'm, I'm on the spot, so I'm forgetting what it says. <laughs> Nothing that needs to be done hasn't already been done. So this is, reminds me of the gospel in this particular area. I try to keep that before me because it helps me remember that God's already accomplished the most important work. And I can have peace about my schedule when I remember what he's done. I can do tasks and serve others out of this place of joy and obedience to God, wanting to do what he wants me to do instead of what I think I need to do. So the gospel is good news. It gives us a new way to live. The passage goes on to say in verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. The law shows us our deep need for a savior, but it's not observation of the law that saves us, it's faith in Christ. Now that doesn't mean we're no longer called to obey a moral law, you know, the Ten Commandments, love your neighbor, these are good things that we should do, but we die to the law as a way of being saved, as doing those things so that God will accept us. We die to the condemnation of the law so that we can live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We now have a new motive for obedience. Because we're accepted by God, we can obey him out of gratitude and service to him as the one who loves us and gave himself for us. Our value is now in Christ. What's been crucified is our need to gain approval from anything other than him. In Jesus, we know we are loved and accepted and our future is secure and that liberates us to serve him out of a place of fullness. Now we can serve him with joy. We can serve him because we want to show him how much we love him. We can serve him because we want to be like him, this one who gave himself for us. Now as we live and make choices and do our work and interact with the people around us, we do all that remembering who we are in Christ and remembering his love for us. Paul concludes this section by saying, I do not set aside the grace of God 
For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Tim Keller is a former pastor of a big church in New York City. He's author of several several books on the gospel and its implications for our life. And he shares this illustration, and I'll end with this. Imagine that your house were burning down, but your whole family had escaped. And I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran into the house and died. What a tragic and pointless waste of a life, you would probably think. But now imagine that your house was on fire and one of your children was still in there. And I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. I ran into the flames and saved your child, but perished myself. You would think, look how much that man loved us. He says, if we could save ourselves, Christ's death is pointless and means nothing. If we realize we cannot save ourselves, Christ's death will mean everything to us, and we will spend the life he has given us in joyful service of him, bringing our whole lives into line with the gospel. Let's pray. God, we are humbled before you, knowing that it's nothing we can do to get salvation. First, we recognize that we need you. We're in need of a savior. You've set a standard that we're not able to meet, but thank you for your grace and love in providing Christ to take on that penalty and and give us righteousness when we trust in him. Lord, I pray that you would open us to see more and more those areas of our lives where we're not living in line with the gospel. Help us to see where we need to look to you for our value and acceptance and not to anything else. Help us every day to beat this into our heads and our hearts, what the gospel is, the fact that you love us. You've justified us. You've declared us not guilty by your grace. And as we receive that and live in light of it, would you enable us to serve you with joy and an obedience that wants to delight in you. We offer ourselves to you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.